This is the Color Pencil Podcast, session number 207. Welcome to Sharpened Artist, a colored pencil podcast where we discuss in detail all things in and around colored pencils and the colored pencil artist. And now your hosts, Lisa Clow and John Middick. Hello, my name is John Middick, SharpenedArtist.com, and I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host, Lisa Clow of Lockery Fine Art. Lisa, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing never better, and this is the show about colored pencil, where we discussed... Where we discuss colored pencil. We're doing a Q&A show, a couple of them, perhaps, so we're going to go ahead and just dive right in. Yeah, and if you want to submit questions for a Q&A, you can submit that over at our Facebook group or even this. These ones actually came from the Lockery Artists group. So if you guys ever have any questions that you would like us to address, just let us know. We'll include it in a future show. So our first question came from Curtis Brown, who asked how to make black polychromos look rich and vibrant and not dull or matte black. So my biggest tip on this is don't just use black polychromos. On top of that, layer some different reds, purples, blues. Reds and blues are my main ones, and then I'll put black right back over it. I use odorless mineral spirits on everything, so when I blend out with that, it just kind of melds all those together, and I find that you get a much more rich color. The other thing is to keep your pencil sharp, obviously. Get that into all the nooks and crannies by building up with light layers, but multiple layers with with several colors like that really can make a big difference in how rich that looks versus just that flat matte black. Yeah, I don't really have much to add to that. I mean, I I rarely ever do use just black straight. Um, And when I even use black, I'm always layering it with something else like a dark green, dark blue, dark red or all three. Yeah. And don't assume that black is the color you always need for shadows or dark areas. Sometimes purple's the right answer. More often than not, Purples I would say purple blues. is a, is a yeah. good one. Purples yeah. and magentas. And especially like if I'm going to be shading something over yellow, if I'm painting a yellow rose or something along those lines, almost all of my shadows are going to be purples, magentas, oranges. It's not even going to be black in that case. So don't always assume. Now, I'm a big fan of the black colored pencil. I use it all the time, but I'm always combining it with other things. And then again, try, try to avoid seeing how much you can avoid using that pencil at all if it's not needed because so often I see people jump to that for all of the shadows and it's really not always the best choice. Yeah, it's like one of the last pencils I ever grab. If I'm looking at it in the final portions of the drawing and I'm looking at finishing touches and I say, okay, what can make this pop? It's not always the lighter colors that'll make it pop. It's going in that negative direction, uh, pushing it even darker, like the pupil or the eyelashes for a portrait, that kind of thing. Okay, so next, Justine asks, what are some various techniques for depicting whiskers? I mean, there's there's probably a lot of ways to do this. One of the most classic ways that we've often heard about, and I think it was done a lot in the past, was just to use an impressed line, like use a stylus or something like that to create uh, an indentation in your paper. I'm not a real big fan of that kind of thing because it, it can kind of look kind of funny unless at the very end you're burnishing everything and you're pressing everything 
all the way down. Uh, it can look kind of weird that you've got these impressed lines, depending on how small or how tight the details are and if somebody's looking at it very closely. Um, but it, it is a method and it's a way of doing that. Uh, other ways to do it is protect it using some liquid um, frisket or um, masking fluid. The thing I can't ever, th- I don't know why <laughs> when we start talking about that. I can't ever think of that name. Uh, masking fluid. So use that or, you know, you can, you can go on top of it depending on which support you're using. But if you're using a non-absorbent support, um, then Using something like pastel mat or pastel paper uh, like Fisher 400 or any of the sanded papers or UART uh, pastel paper, those you can go over white and you can go over light uh, pencils on top of dark pencils and it show up very nicely. Um, another way to get it to pop really uh, well, if you're, I guess, drawing really, really large, you need these to be extremely white, is you could use the touch-up texture uh, titanium white and mix that together and put that down. Um, but I, I, do, I don't know that that's real, real necessary with, with just whiskers unless I think it like is saying, if you're talking about something almost, real large, then you don't even I have to do would. it large though. Yeah. But I mean, you don't need to do it if you're using pastel paper, if you're using sanded um, paper, you can go over it with light colors on top of dark. Yeah, my, I have three main ways I, I do this. Um, the first was just to take white colored pencil first where the whisker is going to go. Try to work around that area as much as possible. But when I blend with OMS, it tends to bleed over it. At, but the thing is, I can then lift the part that bled over because I put white down first. It sort of protects the paper. Yeah. So um, that was one method is just to put the white down first. And I would burnish that in. I would like really sharp pencil and burnish. Like, yeah, I forgot jam that about pencil that. Into the that paper. is one that I've done as well. And that worked yeah. really well. And then the second way would be to do the same thing. Burn, you know, get that white really in there. When I get my other color on top, I can take a piece of scotch tape or whatever invisible tape you want to use and a stylus and lift the color off so it reveals that white again over the whisker. That has been really, really effective, but it requires me to put that white down first. It won't work if I get color and then try to lift the color and then put white over it. Like it doesn't seem to work so well in the reverse. Get that white on there first. The next method, of course, is touch-up texture titanium white mixture has been the absolute best for me. Now, here's the thing. I don't want to just put white whiskers with that and leave them white because you usually don't want just a solid line of white. It doesn't look very natural. So what I do is I'll make the white with the touch-up texture, titanium white mixture, let it dry completely. And when I say completely, I mean like 15 minutes. I really have gotten to where I let that dry a very long time because if it doesn't, if it's dry just to the touch, when you go over with your pencil, sometimes it'll it'll kind of scrape it up. It really needs to be dry. It almost needs to cure. Let that dry all the way. And then I'll take a blue or a purple or other colors and shade that whisker. So it's not just a white line start to finish. So that way, especially when it's closer to the the animal's face, I can add that shadow in there top of it or even thin it out if my line was too thick which happens sometimes when you draw whiskers or paint them on I will go back through with a pencil and just clean up those edges to thin it out. The last method that I've been using is to shade in again first with the white, but instead of using tape this time to pull color back off if I got a little crazy when I was blending, use my ceramic knife, the slight, I think it's called something slice. We talked about that um, in a recent podcast, but I'll use that knife and just slightly scrape up any color to reveal the white colored pencil below again. Now that method isn't amazing, amazing for for whiskers just because your lines are almost too thin with that. So you have to kind of work over that area a little bit more, a few more times to thicken up the whisker as needed. But those have been my absolute favorite methods. 
I guess it would depend on how large the piece is, right? Yes, I mean, definitely. You know, so, yeah, I mean, if you're using the uh, titanium white and touch-up texture, um, I think that's a good tip that you don't – it would look actually kind of scary if you left those uh, yeah. completely white. So you want to think about the natural look of this tapering of the color. And actually, even if my reference doesn't say so, I'm going to I'm going to do that anyway. I'm always going to create some type of movement in a color or in any type of shading. I want a value not to stay static or to keep a value uh, like it's some kind of block or yeah. some kind of static value i want it to move i want it to uh fade in and out uh, it's and like you- drawing branches it's the same thing you don't want the same color start to finish you're going to have areas that you have darker and lighter and it's going to shift depending on on how the light is is catching and hitting and and it's going to look more realistic if you do that if you try to put and that's just such a mistake a lot of people make is they, they when they get started is they think if i just put the right color in the right place that's what's going to make it look realistic i mean i guess sort of but the problem is a lot of people who who go jump in that way they're also thinking the right color in the right place is that right color goes everywhere and it just doesn't it's going to shift constantly yeah and while we're on let me let me just insert one other thing because um, it was kind of brought up i guess a little bit here while we're on the topic fresh on my mind this question came up just recently with uh, some of the new students in the face value portrait course that is uh, by the way only open for when this comes out it's open for about nine more days uh, to enroll when this comes out maybe seven uh, I'm not sure so little shameless plug there but <laughs> <laughs> if you're wanting to learn how to do portraiture but anyway this came up uh, that somebody said how do I get those uh, that wrinkle that when someone's smiling in a portrait how do I get those little smile lines in the cheeks you know from the extension from the base of the nose um, to the mouth. And they said, do I use a, a stylus and create indentations? And then how do I shade that? You know, um, and that, you know, that would not be something that I would ever recommend that you indent your paper for smile lines like that. In that area of the face, that is more shading. So look at, look at the values and how those move in and out. And depending on the lighting situation, you'll want one side typically to most often be shaded as a contour, a curve, the cheeks in particular. And then they create a cast shadow onto the top portion of the mouth right there, shared with the filtrum area. So uh, from we're talking about from the ala all the way down to the edges of uh, the corners of the mouth. So that's what we're talking about, that area right there. So the second part of this question was, what is the best way to learn animal anatomy and improve the accuracy of wildlife drawing? So the things, and everybody's going to have a different method. There's no one right or wrong way. But what I found worked best with my students from teaching them for over 20 years is go ahead and trace that subject. If you've got a good reference photo, trace it and then freehand it. So, you know, go back and forth between trace it. It's going to show your brain because one of the things that we have to do is teach our brain to see what's really there and not what we think is there. And tracing is one of the ways that can teach your brain to notice things and to see things it wasn't otherwise noticing. What happens so often is we go to draw, it could be a rose or an animal, anything. And our brain's like, I know what a rose looks like. We don't need that photo. We, we You just put that away. We don't right. even need to look at it. And it doesn't end up looking what like that photo. So if you can trace it, you're, you're, the point of tracing is not to forever depend on tracing. The goal is to be able to freehand things accurately. 
But in order to, and for those, I know there are plenty who will always trace everything and that's how they enjoy working. There's nothing, I don't see anything wrong with that either. No, so right. Just to clarify that. Don't feel like I'm bashing you because I think there's nothing wrong with that. But what I, when people are wanting to learn to freehand on their own, the best thing that worked in my experience was get them to trace it. They see lines, they see curves, they see how everything is put together. They notice details that they didn't notice on their own, but then freehand it. So maybe trace it 10 times, then freehand it then trace it another few times, then freehand it. And I've, I had students work back and forth. And the difference in how fast they improved their drawing skills was just phenomenal. How quickly somebody who would combine trace it a bunch of times, then freehand it. Those artists, I found, learned to freehand better, more accurately, and way faster than those who only practiced freehanding and never tried tracing that subject a couple of times. So really noticed a huge, huge difference there. That's probably been, I would say, of all, and again, there's a million methods out there. There's no one right or wrong way. You want to find what works best for you. But that seemed to work the best for the majority of the students I worked with. Yeah, I don't really have anything to add to that. I mean, as far as improving accuracy in anything, I think that's a good way to go to trace it first. And then you're training your eye to be able to see things. But I mean, if you're just wanting to learn the overall anatomy of whatever it is, if it's, you know, a person or an animal or whatever, there's so many resources now online where you can go and look at the skeletal outline of, you know, what the anatomy is and look at the muscular structure as well. So look at those structures uh, if you're wanting to learn that and you've got to you've got to kind of narrow it down and pick whatever it is, you know, if it's a certain breed of dog or a cat or something or, um, you know, an exotic animal, whatever that is, I would study one of those in particular uh, for a while to learn certain things about that particular animal. And I think that would uh, would serve you a lot better than just trying to figure out every animal's skeletal structure that you know it would be overwhelming so i would narrow it down to whatever it is you're most interested in and then just become obsessed with that particular thing that's that's what i would recommend become obsessive learn as much about that animal as you possibly can gene asks i was wondering about the new colors for derwent light fast color pencils and if you purchased any yet yeah, I did just get my set a few days ago, and they're very nice. The 72 set is very nice. So you, what, the nice thing about it is you can order just the 36 set that uh, is brand new. So there is a second 32 set that they're including with this complete 72 set. And so if you ordered the 36 set original one back in late summer, then you can go ahead and order just the next tray that you would have received in the 72 set. Uh, that's a nice way to go instead of just having to, you know, purchase, repurchase the 72 set and get the first set of pencils that you may already have. Um, they're nice. Uh, I recently just did a live stream um, about these pencils and reviewing them a little bit. And I've tried them out a little bit, testing them on uh, pastel mat and on Stonehenge paper. The thing that I would say about them in particular, if you're not familiar with the light fast, Derwent light fast pencils, is they're, they remind me a lot of polychromos pencils. I love them because they're all light fast. I don't have to think about whether or not this particular pencil is light fast if I want to use it. They're just light fast. I can grab it if I want to. 
I like having that option in my um, tool belt that I can just say, okay, I can use any of these pencils that I want because they're light fast. So they have a light and light fast one or a two rating, which is really nice. Yeah, I don't really have much to add because I've not used them yet or the the new batch, but I do know as far as the old batch. Oh my gosh, they're absolutely one of my favorite pencils as far as performance goes. Yeah, they're so. so nice. I'm excited to get the full. You're going to like the blues, Lisa. I think you're going to oh, love that's the good blues. To hear. There's a lot of blues now. There was only one Pinks in that first set. are my thing that I'm set. like. Pinks and purples are always are like magentas are always the one that I I always feel like I need more light yeah. cast colors of. Yeah. They have some really nice selections now. I cannot talk today. <laughs> they have some really nice selections now for portrait artists. There's some skin tones in there as well. So this is a really interesting discussion um, topic from David Rooks, who writes, he would like to know our opinion on the massive interest in colored pencil artwork that's happening over the last five years. Did it start with the adult coloring book trend? Artists like ourselves have gained popularity on YouTube and social media contributing to the surge. Do you think that has anything to do with it or the proliferation of a bunch of new companies jumping on the bandwagon, creating new brands of colored pencils? Fatigue of the traditional mediums being seen and used over the years. Also, the same trend seems to be happening now with pastels and pastel pencils on YouTube and social media. I think social media is largely um, contributing to this. I don't think it's so much that other companies are making colored pencils because, I mean, if we go to the base pencils we've had forever, Prismacolor, Polychromos, and Luminance have been around for a very long time. Those have been amazing pencils that I think other companies are jumping in just because it's popular. I don't think it's the the reverse. Um, But... I Yeah, I think coloring books probably helped, but I would say the biggest thing is being able to see artwork on social media because people didn't realize what colored pencil could do. And I think that's why it didn't grow as fast earlier that and, and you know, if we go back, gosh, 20 years or more, we didn't have as many light fast colors. So that was certainly a concern not being able to produce artwork that was going to be completely archival. But now we've got archival materials, archival papers, so many different methods to blend. And there's so many YouTubers, especially YouTubers in social media, but showing people, look, this is what this medium can do. Whereas before so many people assumed colored pencil would look like crayon work. And I think that's, I think social media is probably the biggest, including YouTube, is one of the biggest things. I mean, when you see what an artist like Heather Rooney does, or I mean, there's just tons of artists out there who do amazing, realistic work, but it really made a difference for people to see what a colored pencil could do. And I think that that is the thing that pushed it forward. And it's not as messy. I think a lot of the artists wanted to do realistic work, but maybe they didn't want to mess with oils or acrylics and have to deal with the dry time and rinsing brushes and all of that. Colored pencil, it's a slow medium, but it also... I feel like isn't as intimidating for a lot of people to start as paint. That's it. Uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I I don't know. Um, he says five years or so. I I don't know. I think it's the combination. I I think if you could rewind the tape and you went back and if there was some genie who could tell us. Here, here are the indicators. Here's the KPIs that tell that, that would uh, point to this trend. And look, the trajectory is going up over here. That because of interest, I you know I don't know, but I, I guess we could uh, guess, and that's all purely it is is conjecture. But um, the adult coloring book I know has had a big influence on a lot of uh, artists who did not ever see themselves as artists. 
Um, but if we're talking about the past five years, I mean, the Colored Pencil Society of America was formed, what, about 25 years ago. It is the reason why we have the Luminance Pencil. They, they were pushed by the Colored Pencil Society of America to create a Lightfast brand. So that organization has something to do with it. Now, of course, it's a recent organization, but it has had an influence, it's sort of this global type of influence. Um, the proliferation of, you know, some of the uh, other pencil brands coming on board. I'm sure that that has helped a little bit. But, I mean, you don't know what one trigger will do to another. I mean, who knows if Derwent would have ever created Lightfast pencils the way that they have now, had it not been for, you know, Carindosh coming out with Luminance. These companies are constantly trying to get better and better at creating Lightfast pencils. And I really love that. Now, because we don't have a barrier to entry anymore and we can, as artists, put things out there on social media, we can upload videos to YouTube, any uh, way that you can think of that uh, allows an artist to be seen or to create something to disperse that to a large audience, like a podcast, I guess. That often uh, helps with something like an underdog medium like colored pencil is. It is a newer medium. I mean, we're, it's not been that long for artists to be able to have a light, fast colored pencil that is professional grade that we can do works in and we can trust that they're going to last. So I, I think that has helped Probably more than anything that the fact that we have light fast materials now companies, not just the pencil companies, but paper companies as well. They're focused also on colored pencil artists. A lot of shows now will even mention colored pencil in uh, the list of mediums that are accepted. It used to be, you know, you would see something like uh, mixed media or something like that. And now uh, we even have that listed, you know, that colored pencil pieces are accepted. You know, I don't, I don't know. It's an interesting question, though, Lisa, I think, because you can't really point to one thing. Yeah, but definitely a combination of yeah, a lot of things. Just so many things happening. I, would, I just I would think it's a great time to be a colored pencil artist. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. I would definitely say I think social media is probably the biggest contributing factor i think Maybe that, that kind of started a, a yeah sure. in the last five years i would say i think that started so. a chain reaction that just pushed like if i had this if i had to pick one but i think you're right i think it's so many different p- factors so many different things that work together to get yeah. us to this point you, you think of a company or you think of a um, in this case a pencil or a uh, art medium as being something like oh it's just an overnight success but there's a lot of things actions that took place you know, sort of this domino effect that had to happen in order for it to have sort of the launch that it has, you know. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's hard to tell, but I'm just glad that it's happening. Me too. <laughs> All right. So maybe you have a question. Lisa mentioned some places where you could go to uh, submit those. And you can also go to sharpenedartist.com slash Q&A. You can email us podcast at sharpenedartist.com. You can write us uh, snail mail. And Lisa, you want to give your address? all right this is a weekly show we'll talk to you again next week bye thanks for listening to this week's episode all the show notes can be found at www.sharpenedartist.com 